Now hear this. Now hear this. Week seven of QuantCamp begins at 0500. Today we will be learning that you don't need a drill sergeant. You are your own drill sergeant. So don't drop and give me 100 push-ups. Drop and give yourself 100 push-ups. Fall in. Hey there, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm hanging in there. I'm on about my third cup of coffee, so I'm halfway there. Well, let me tell you what I've been doing. I have been going back through a number of our old episodes, and I do this from time to time because I post those little quotes from the episodes that we have. So for anybody who has ever recorded themselves teaching, for example, or made any other recording of themselves, it's often really hard for us to listen to ourselves. And I will tell you that that is no exception for me. I find it excruciating to listen to my own voice, to hear the things that I say. I'm just perpetually embarrassed for myself. I really enjoy listening to myself recorded except for two things. What I sound like and the things that I say. Other than that, I'm really comfortable with that. I don't know why you put yourself through the agony of going back and re-listening to those, because I have to admit, I do not. I, I cannot stand it. I just pretend like they never existed. Yeah, but I will tell you, it is slightly more bearable if you do it at a faster speed. And we're much more tolerable at a faster pace, I have to say. I recommend it, frankly. This is like, which is worse, walking through the rain or running through the rain? <laughs> I don't know, dude. My answer, I pick option C, which is I just pretend they don't exist. And I don't know how any of you out there can stand it. That just remains beyond me. <laughs> but thank you for standing it. I'll tell you, if you really, really want to torture yourself, listen to an episode at half speed. We sound just so completely wasted. Uh, it's hilarious. You have to try that if you haven't tried it. Not to push things along, but could I be so bold as to ask if you have a point? Uh, okay, if you're going to poke at me, sure. One of the episodes that I was going through because I made a recent posting of a clip from that episode on Twitter, it was the Factor Analysis episode, which was episode 22. But there was something that was said in that episode that I thought was really, really interesting, believe it or not. And e even more shocking was it was said by you. Um, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it. But let me go ahead and play that clip for you, okay? Um, no. No, I would rather... Don't... do Don't... Da, eh. We're in a tough time right now, but we will be on the other side of it. And it's in a matter of weeks... I'm hoping things will at least begin to right themselves, and in a matter of months, we'll be getting back to life as we once knew it. Uh. <laughs> okay, I really don't mean to belabor this, but returning to that issue of you not having a point, was there a reason why you decided to highlight that I predicted this entire thing would be over by June 1st? Well, first of all, I take tremendous enjoyment when you're wrong. And is that, I don't know if that's a sign of, of, of me, but it's just so much fun. And man, were you wrong. You were spectacularly wrong. Let's just take a moment to bathe in your wrongitude here. Yeah, your prediction was so off. Would you care to comment on that, Dr. Curran? Well, this is the world in which I live, as I am one of those guys who makes loud and bold predictions that are rarely, if ever, correct. 
in our program and in a research group is the general rule is if I offer to bet anybody on anything, they should take it because I have yet to win one. And so first, I'm in my comfort zone here is you can play that again if you want. We can play it a third time if you want. And I'm like, yep, no, these are treaded grounds that I've been through before. The other thing, though, was when I said that, I honestly believed it. That mm-hmm. was the first week of April. We probably would have recorded that at the last week of March. Kind of the peg now for when did things really start shutting down were the Ides of March. So that was, you know, middle of March. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely believed that we had a rough couple of weeks coming up and that couple of months to get the ship righted again. And then we were going to get back to work. It is now, as we're talking, July 10th, and I was slightly off in my prediction. (laughs) Yes, it's comforting to know that you have such a huge error component in all that you do. And to be entirely fair to you, I don't think anybody really knew what the heck they were talking about. And we all were taking the information that was around us and making these prognostications. And they were educated prognostications, just horrifically wrong in so many cases. But nobody else knew either. And I think that is very symbolic of the job that we are in and the career that we are in. And so that, my friend is ultimately the point that I want to make. We are people who are in positions in which we are sought out for knowing things. We're supposed to know a bunch of stuff. And we go down swinging spectacularly on things all the time, every day. There's so many things that we don't know about. And I thought that might be something fun to talk about today. I think this issue is simultaneously one of the most maddening things about our field but also what makes it so much fun. And over the years, I only have two hobbies that I really committed myself to. One is music. I play horrible trumpet. And one is martial arts. And I I practice horrible martial arts. But what's interesting about them, and my family good-naturedly teases me about it, is the hobbies that I've chosen, you never become an expert in. You're never at the level that you want to be. When I look at my trumpet playing, the amount of improvement I've made over the last eight years is spectacular. I'm a completely different trumpet player now than I was eight Mm -hmm. years ago, but I still suck because Sean is better than I am and Mike is better than I am and Doug is better than I am. But that's why I love it, right? Is no matter what you do, you know you can do better. Mm-hmm. And I think that describes our field. And I think it describes our field in two ways, one of which overlaps with music, but one that doesn't. As the one that overlaps with music is there's always something out there to learn about structural equation modeling or multi-level modeling or factor analysis or psychometrics that you didn't know before, right? So there's the foundational mm-hmm. stuff. But the other one, and maybe we can just dedicate this episode to, we could even title it, is It's Chris Preacher's Fault. <laughs> The preacher problem. (laughs) All right, let's just go with that. It's the preacher problem, which is, it's not just that there's something out in the world that I don't know about in the foundational stuff, but I open up a new issue of Psych Methods, and there sits some creative, clever, novel development that now I got to go figure out, and it's preacher's fault. 
there's some new approach to doing a multi-level SEM, to doing some model evaluation, to doing some model comparison. And my only thought, I have a three-word reaction when I see Preacher at all, which is, son of a b- now I got to go figure this out. That's four words. <laughs> son, son of b- <laughs> There. You happy? Are you yeah. happy, counter yes, boy? I, I'm much happier now. Thank you. This episode is dedicated in part to the preacher problem. There we go. Yeah, and so the difference between the trumpet thing or the martial arts thing, as you highlighted, is that in those you are getting better and better at a craft that I think is largely well-defined. Unless you're trying to break new musical ground or, or new ground in the martial arts, you are getting better and better at a craft that has its boundaries, for the most part, reasonably well-defined. But if someone all of a sudden came up to your trumpet and and secretly during the night put another valve on it right? Change the instrument in some way. <laughs> then you're like, what the hell? What? I'm, <laughs> most of us would say, I'm a, I'm a three valve trumpet player. Yeah. I don't see the need for that fourth valve at all. I've never needed that fourth valve before. Damn it. <laughs> three valves were good enough in my day. We never needed that fourth <laughs> valve. <laughs> I think your dad described it as moving the goalposts. Is that right? Yeah. You huddle up to get a game plan, and then you go up to the Mm -hmm. line of scrimmage, and you're not on the 8-yard line anymore. Now you're on the 32-yard line because somebody dug up the goalpost and dragged it down the field. And you know whose fault it is? Chris Preacher's fault. There we go. I feel those goalposts moving every single day. And we all face that, right? Whether we're students or whether we are faculty, the number of valves that keep getting added to our trumpet seems to be increasing exponentially. I really love that analogy because you're absolutely right that within music, within reason, within music, Mm -hmm. it is a fixed system. Among trumpet players, it's very hard to play high. And there are two kinds of high notes you can have. You can have a church high note and you can have a marching band high note. And so when I talk about my own playing, I have a church A and a marching band C. And I've worked for a lot of time to try to get a church C. And I don't have a church C. And I'm still very far away from doing that, but it's a fixed system. I don't open a new issue of Musicians Monthly and they invented a new note. Mm-hmm. that I now have to learn how to play. But Preacher keeps publishing papers in psych methods that present a new note that I didn't know before, and now I have to go learn how to play. And it hurts me a little to say this, but we're going to return to Donald Rumsfeld. You said you wouldn't. I know, but the man, for all his other evilness, did have a nice turn of phrase. But it goes back to the known unknowns and unknown unknowns. But there's a complication here, which is, I feel like at least when we move into quant methods, there's also, for lack of a better term, the unknown who cares which is Hmm. our field pebble picks a lot. Some little thing that nobody 
cares about. One of my colleagues who's an international expert in item response theory once said in a, a talk that he knows more about IRT than he should. And I just <laughs> love that phrase. <laughs> So it's not only how do you know what you don't know, but how do you know what you don't know that's actually important or meaningful or needs to be known? Because there are a whole lot of papers out there and a whole lot of journals that definitively convey something that just really isn't that important. And so how do you sort through to pull out what is beneficial and meaningful and what is just some pebble that's been thrown into the pile? Yeah. And so we're talking about, you might be a PhD student or a postdoc or a fairly new faculty member, or you might be a much older researcher, someone who's been around for a while. And you have to figure out, I think as a first thing, what you don't know. So what do you do, Patrick? How do you figure out? How do you figure out what you don't know, or does it just hit you? Usually it's a dollar short and a day late is I'll do something mm -hmm. that's finished, and then somebody will say, you know, eight years ago, Chris Preacher published a paper where he showed that what you did was completely biased and invalid, and, you know, so mine is usually like, oh, wow, I wish I had known that then. I think this is one of the fundamental problems that face us because there are kind of two domains of this, right? Is if you're on the younger end of your professional career, a lot of the unknowns are still in foundational kinds of topics. So we talked a couple of weeks ago with Becca and about what if you're in a department that doesn't have a strong quant area, but you still are deeply respectful of quantitative methodology and want to weave that in. You can ask yourself, all right, I've had a really good SEM course, but how do I learn growth modeling? How do I learn mm -hmm. mixture modeling? How do I learn survival analysis? So that again is there's a church A, I can't play a church A yet. How do I learn how to play a church A? So that's one cluster of things. I think the other cluster of things that applies to both people that are younger in their field, but also to us old folks as well, which is Chris Preacher's fault, I want to do a growth model. I have mom, dad, and kid report on the child behavior, but all I know is how to do a pretty standard latent curve model. Is there a way that I could bring a multi-level aspect into this SEM growth framework? I know growth pretty well. I know SEM pretty well, but I have no freaking idea how to make the ice cream sandwich to get the multi-level SEM then how do you identify that and inform yourself about these novel developments where somebody invented a new note? Now you have to go learn a Q-sharp. You've never heard of a Q-sharp. You don't know how to play a Q-sharp. You don't even know how the hell it falls into any given scale of what a Q-sharp is. But thanks to Dr. Preacher, now I got to go learn a freaking Q-sharp. A church Q-sharp and a marching band okay, Q-sharp, right? Uh, that's exactly right. Because when you learn how to play the Q-sharp, then does that become part of the foundation that then there is a church Q-sharp and there's a, a marching band Q-sharp? You are exactly right. I think one of the key things that we have in our field is that we have to operate from a place of being willing to put yourself in situations where you will encounter things that you don't know. It can be very easy, especially as you get older, to say, this is what I know. 
this is what I do. And when you encounter things that are outside that sphere to just say, yeah, I don't do those kinds of things. That's not what I'm good at. Mm -hmm. And you notice that when you deal with the older colleagues who were trained at a particular point in time, they acquired a particular methodological skill set. And that methodological skill set has served them very well for the journal space that they operate in. And if you mention some new, fancier method, they're like, yeah, no, that's just not something I do. You and I find ourselves in a position where we are encountering new things all the time, where the methodological goalposts of our field are being moved. And I think that you and I embrace that. You and I seek that out. And I think that we would like to encourage people out there as young scholars and as older scholars to put themselves in those situations where they don't know things, to seek out these new things selectively and keep learning those new things. Well, a couple of reactions. First is, I mean, I myself in my own field, I pretty clearly define in my own head what I do and what I don't do. And so it applies to the older person who has a skill set that's worked for them. I think it applies to everybody. <laughs> I will have a student who wants me on a dissertation committee to help them with meta-analysis. I don't do meta-analysis. I don't know anything about meta-analysis. I don't have a personal interest to go teach myself about meta-analysis. And I'll just say you need to find somebody else because that's not what I do. I think that applies to varying degrees to everybody. But I really do believe the core of the issue is how do you identify what you need to go learn about or what you need to know. In my own little tiny selfish world, there are two dimensions this falls in. One is a very pragmatic engineering problem. All right, and it's actually one that I'm working on right now. It's a fascinating data set. There are kids nested within grades and grades nested within schools. There are millions of kids, 16,000 grades, 5,000 schools with a binary outcome. And grade is a level of nesting at level two. But we also want to use grade as a moderator of the relation between kid predictors and the kid outcome. And it's a very specific engineering problem. And I literally last night was reading the Glimix manual in trying to understand how to do this. So one is very discreet. Oh, crap, I've got this problem. I've got to figure out. The other one is the preacher problem, which is how do you develop a strategy to stay current of recent developments so that you have those things in your back pocket that when you're in a situation, you can say, oh, you know what? There's been some developments in being able to make this particular ice cream sandwich, and I think that might be applicable here. And so I think those are two different trajectories that can bring you into how do you know what you don't know? Absolutely the case, right? So one of them I think you described is well within your neighborhood and it's a deeper dive into something, whether it's a unique problem or a nuance to something that is still in the space of things you generally know about. I think of the preacher problem as cobbling things onto that space and expanding it more broadly, right? Here's a new type of model we can do. Here's a new type of question we can address and so forth. I feel like there's a third one, and that's the developments that take place completely outside of our world. 
if I use the example of machine learning. I can't blame Chris for machine learning, but machine learning is out there. And as I feel that getting increasing gravitas out there in the world, I have to ask myself, is that something I need to learn about? And it feels bigger and heavier and weightier and and you feel it breathing down your neck out there. And I have the option of saying that's not something I know about. That's not something I do. Or have the option of trying to engage with that thing. Now, as it turns out, I know a lot of machine learning. In fact, we all know a lot of machine learning because they just (laughs) took old stuff and renamed it. But there are certain nuances to this thing called machine learning and certain aspects of it that are less familiar to people who tend to do the things that we're doing. So there's this issue of do we engage, do we not engage? So again, I, I feel that third level there. I'm liking this because I like typologies. I like kind of structuring things. And what I would call what you just described is a known unknown. There's machine learning. Mm. And do you feel an ethical responsibility to know that? Is that something that you want to bring into your teaching? It's just a new challenge, right? All of us like to say, well, I know this other stuff pretty well. It's I'd like to learn this new thing. That's kind of cool. That's a known unknown. And I've got a very long list. (laughs) And what I struggle with are the unknown unknowns. I like reading fiction. And one of my favorite writers is Stephen King. He has a memoir, and it's probably 20 years old now, but it's called On Writing. And it's a memoir, but it's also how does he write? How does he approach a problem? And I actually assign some of his chapters in my research methods class because there's wonderful overlap with science. And one of the things he talks about in there is he was working with his uncle. His uncle was going to go out in the back pasture and fix a gate. And he trundled out his big toolbox with him to the gate. And Stephen asked him, why are you bringing your big toolbox? And he said, well, we don't know what we'll need when we get out there. And if we only bring one or two tools and we need something more, we might try to make those tools work and make it worse than it was in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to bring my entire toolbox so that we can do the job correctly. And then he talks about how being a writer is you need your full toolbox with you because you don't know what you're going to need. And I actually think that's exactly what we're talking about here. The preacher problem is building your toolbox because when you get out to the job site and you open it up, you want to have everything that's available to you so that you can pick the correct tool to do the correct thing that you want to do at that point in time. I love that analogy. As an amateur home repair person, that is the perfect analogy. In fact, I was working on redoing a bathroom one time with a friend who was much, much more knowledgeable, and he kept referring to me as Primitive Pete because I would try to use tools that were clearly not designed for those particular purposes. So he had to educate me on what to do. So then the question for us is, how do we acquire these tools? How do we up our game? How do we become aware of these developments that are out there? What are things that we can do to try and keep those things on our radar and begin to decide to engage with those particular things? So how do you deal with the preachers of the world? (laughs) 
Well, it's a very modern age, right, where you can be bombarded with information about all the stuff that's going on in the world. You can follow all kinds of Twitter feeds about developments that are out there, people making manuscripts available on these different websites. You can have table of contents sent to you electronically. You can subscribe to particular listservs. There are many, many things that you can do. I might operate a little bit differently, a little bit more old school, but what about those? Do you engage with a lot of those electronic ways to stay current? Only in that it fosters my guilt for then not reading the papers that are associated with the email <laughs> table of contents or the recommended reading. And I'm dead serious. You know, journals to me are just like this monument to guilt of all the things that I'm not reading that I should be. Some people aren't aware of this, but when you have some journals that you follow or you have favorite journals is almost all of them you can put your email address in and they'll send you the table mm -hmm. of contents. Like I said, is I put a yellow sticky or some kind of earmark on it and then I rarely, if ever, go read it. I'll be completely <laughs> honest. But the damn goalpost problem is Preacher has mm -hmm. written three more papers since the first one that I still haven't read yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's how I handle it. Yeah, it's really easy to delete things. And, you know, we're in the fortunate position of being able to make those kinds of decisions. There are people who are younger scholars who really don't have the luxury of just going, hey, look, a table of contents, delete. <laughs> What I tend to do is I will often take those kinds of articles and I will put them in either an electronic folder in my email or I will download the PDFs. I have a whole folder that says, you know, to read or to be read. And then I can delete the whole folder all at once. <laughs> <laughs> That's what basically happens. So I have a better strategy, and it is a total old school strategy, but it's what works for me. And it revolves around guilt, which you brought up. So many people don't interact with the physical journals anymore. They interact with things in an electronic way. But I still get the physical journals, and there's really one reason. I will get a new journal. I will go through it, decide what things I think I do need to read. And they could be things in any of those different camps that we talked about. A nuance to something that I already know pretty well, or something that is being added on to expand our particular space, or those known unknowns that are out there in entire other disciplines that are starting to encroach on ours. What I will do is I will put my yellow sticky on that article in that journal and start piling up those journals on the corner of my desk. And that means that I have to walk past that pile every time I go in and out of my home office. And that's like an unpaid bill. I feel the weight of that because I don't like clutter. I don't like things piled up. And so I am manufacturing this guilt inside me. So in order to clean my office, I have to go through and read or at least skim in some detail the contents of those things so I know what's in those things before I can recycle the journal. This is how I channel the guilt of my ancestors into something productive. I got to tell you, it was a real lost opportunity that we weren't able to draft you for the Irish Catholic team. Because, <laughs> dude, that is right in our wheelhouse. Next level, huh? You know, having a little thing by the door that makes you feel guilty at all times. Yeah. We can make you an honorary member of the Irish Catholic team. Thank I, you. Welcome. Welcome to the team. 
But here's the thing. I'm going to channel a little bit of a grumpy old man now, and I reserve the right to channel more of a grumpy old man in a few minutes when we turn to another topic. But the little bit now only applies to me. If I don't know something about something, that's on me. That's my fault. That's my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that's a volitional choice that I'm making. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to become an expert in multi-level SEM, I could do that. I am capable of doing that. And it's a matter of making it a priority and taking responsibility for doing that. I jog and just hobby. I've never done a marathon. I've never done anything. It's just tension reduction for me. But I've run for 30 Mm -hmm. years. And I have running day. And Mm -hmm. I set it up. And it's just every other day. There's no big math problem to it. Is running day is every other day. And I run in electrical storms. I run in ice storms. I run when the heat Mm -hmm. index is 100 degrees in North Carolina. And the reason is it's running day. And (laughs) when I respond to my family who says, why are you going out in an ice storm? My answer Mm -hmm. is, why have a running day if you don't Mm -hmm. run on running day. There you go. So make a reading day. Mm-hmm. Make it a priority. Take responsibility. Why have a reading day if you don't read on reading day? These are problems that you have control over. And so I can't sit around and whine, well, preacher wrote this and I don't understand it. And preacher wrote that and I don't understand. <laughs> well, read the paper. The guy is lucid and clear He gives examples. They're downloaded supports. If you want to learn it, go learn it. And if you don't, shut the hell up about it. (laughs) Yeah, the advice I've heard some people say is treat it like it's a doctor's appointment. Make the appointment with yourself and don't cancel the appointment. What's the point of making the appointment if you're going to cancel the appointment? So, yeah, I think it's an issue of discipline. All right. So we're puzzling through how do you know what you don't know? All right. And let's so we've talked about reading day. We've talked about table of contents. I mean, there are other related things. Go to colloquia outside of your area back when we're going to be doing conferences, which I'm pretty sure we're going to be on the other side of this come Monday. And so I'm pretty excited. (laughs) I think by Wednesday or Thursday, we'll be back in conferences. Uh Um, That's part of it is don't go into echo chambers for what you already know. Go when you're at conferences, go to things that are related to your work, but that you might learn something new or be exposed to something new. All of these things are strategies for doing it. Maybe what we could transition to is to say, okay, so Preacher wrote this paper on multi-level SEM. I think that's really applicable either in my teaching or in my research, or I just feel like that's a new tool that I want to put into my Stephen King toolbox. Boy, that sounds Mm -hmm. bad because that also has things (laughs) like human heads and the soul of (laughs) Satan and things like that. So then the question becomes, how do you go about learning it? All right, so we've identified what we need to know. How do we go about learning it? What do you do to make the preacher problem go away? What I do as a faculty member might be different than what someone does as a student. As a faculty member, I have to manage all the responsibilities of a faculty member while trying to learn things at the same time. And I mention that because those folks who are still in graduate school, really, I will say this as someone who's way on the other side, You just don't know how good you have it. Your whole life is set up for learning things. Your schedule is carved up 
so that you can learn things. You are being paid in many cases through fellowships to learn particular mm. things. As you move on further and further away from that, you are doing other things. And so you have to find ways to be able to create these learning opportunities for yourself. For me, some of the things that I try to do, and some of these are going to be incredibly obvious, especially to younger people, I go through a lot of the online materials that exist. There are some wonderful online courses, right? There's the edX stuff. There's the Coursera courses. Believe it or not, I watch some of the same Khan Academy videos that my kids might be watching, right? Yep. I was spin biking for a period of time. And I watched the whole section on high school algebra, just mm -hmm. on Khan Academy. And I was like, oh, yeah, first, outer, inner, last. That's how you foil a quadratic. I don't remember that nice. since when I was 15. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. I love Khan Academy. And more and more people are putting up YouTube videos that are actually good, that they're good teaching. I, I will... At the risk, there's no risk of making you blush, um, but you and, and Bauer, you and Bauer have a, a bunch of really nice, what do you call them, office hours videos yeah. that are up yeah. there, I think. Those are terrific. My spin bike stuff has been going through series, series on neural nets, how those operate, a lot of machine learning stuff, a lot of regression tree models. They're really terrific things out there. And one of the things that I think that's really important to be clear about is that Every one of these topics you can think of as a very, very long hallway. And I think you have to not make the mistake of thinking that you have to go all the way down every hallway. That if you want to learn about neural nets, that it's like, oh my gosh, there's so much stuff there. You don't have to become a master of all of these domains. What I like to tell students, and I'll get back to some of the things I do myself, is that you only need to open the door and go in a little ways, and you have a really good sense, because from there you can shine the light down the hallway and see that there's a lot more stuff, and you have a sense of what's down there. So a lot of the things that I engage with is me just opening the door and going down the hallway a ways, and sometimes I have enough knowledge to know what's down the rest of the hallway. And sometimes I just become loosely aware of what's down there. I want people to be not discouraged by the length of these hallways. You know, when you say, oh my gosh, that's a whole discipline in and of itself. Yes, it is. And you're not responsible for all of that. And maybe you will get drawn down that hallway. Maybe you may find that the most interesting thing ever. But just be willing to engage to go down those kinds of things. So I take workshops. And the funny thing is, is when I sign up for workshops, a lot of times the presenter will contact me and say, oh, you must know all this stuff already. And the answer is, I don't know a darn thing about it. So I'm in here as a white belt. And I think that is really, really important to be willing to put yourself out there as someone who is ignorant of stuff. I have a number of other strategies, but maybe you want to jump in with some of yours as well. A lot of similar kind of things is just go old school, buy a textbook. What? More and more with new textbooks. They come with web pages that have data and code. Just picking one randomly, it's actually sitting on my desk right here, makes me think about it, is Lisa Hoffman has a wonderful yeah. book on longitudinal analysis and multi-level. She has amazing website with downloadable data files and 
worked examples, mm-hmm. get her book, download the data, and learn through that way. It's a remarkable resource. Is there are a lot of books like that. It's old school, but go get the textbook, download the examples, replicate the analyses, match the table that Lisa has in chapter whatever in table whatever is. Make sure on your computer your output matches what her output is. I feel the old man bubbling up in me. Can I let him out? Because I think I'll feel better. (laughs) When an old man says he wants to let something out, I will generally think you should clear the room. But go ahead, old man. (laughs) Let something out. So with teenage daughters, I learn lots of acronyms that are used in texting and things like that, and some are quite funny. Mm -hmm. The acronym that applies here that I have known for many years myself, and it comes from online bulletin boards and listservs and things like that, is RTFM. And often someone will write to a bulletin board and say, help, my homework is due at five, and... Then in the body of it is, how do I do this? Please, someone help. And the very first response will be nothing more than all capitals RTFM. (laughs) And if you are not familiar with RTFM, it stands for read the manual. And there is a large component of RTFM in this Mm self-education and learning these things on your own. I think you and I both groused a little bit in some prior episode, I don't recall, but this notion of, well, there's not a class in it. Well, you haven't Mm -hmm. done a symposium on that. Well, nobody sent me any articles on that. Yeah, you have to Mm -hmm. go out and you have to download the manual. This problem I told you about, the three-level problem I'm working on, is for two days I've been working through a Glimix manual. And Mm -hmm. it's download it and figure it out. What it is for me is it's not like everybody has to do it on their own, but at least do the due diligence to understand what you do know and then what you do need to reach out for help. Is I read the Glimix manual and I identified three things that I don't understand and I freaking called Bauer because he Mm -hmm. knows these things better than I do. At least I was able to present an informed question because I had done the groundwork first. I think that's a big part of the preacher problem. Yeah, figure it out. Download the code, download the data, download the most recent version of the model, and figure it out. Learn how to do it. My two teenage sons approach problems very, very differently. My older son will spend hours trying to figure things out himself. My younger son will ask my older son how to do something. And my older son will say... Don't even come to me and ask that question until you have consulted at least three things, unless you have tried to do it three <laughs> ways yourself. I don't even want to hear your question. And I just sit back and I listen to this. <laughs> wow, I kind of like that. And my younger son's response is, but you are a resource, so I'm asking you. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good response, but but they approach these things very differently. And Maybe they represent different points along a developmental continuum. If we think about, you know, a lot of the way school is laid out early on, it's very course heavy. But as you progress, 
it starts to switch responsibility for knowledge. Not certainly knowledge creation, because you're supposed to be generating knowledge as you move through your program, but also knowledge acquisition. We have to start shifting the mantle of responsibility onto people so that they are acquiring information themselves, so that they are out there seeking those at least three different ways of figuring these out, so that if you still have a question in the end, at least it's an intelligent question. It's an informed question. And I love that response of Quinn's that, you know, don't even come back to me until you've tried three things. Things. So I think what's really important for us as faculty members when we're overseeing students is to start facilitating that shift from people having the expectation that the knowledge is going to be given to them in the form of a class, in the form of a symposium, in the form of a workshop that we facilitate to helping them to find ways to answer things themselves. Because a PhD doesn't just mean that you know a lot of stuff. It means that you know how to learn stuff, how to acquire information yourself. And I think that's really critical to foster so that people go out there with less of a fixed system and more of a system that they're able to expand. And these are some of the ways that we are going about doing it. I really like that perspective, and it draws parallels to me to, you mentioned earlier about you're going into a workshop as a white belt. You've had a lot of years in martial arts yourself, and you fully are aware of this issue is in the traditional art of the martial arts, the black belt represents that you have learned the foundational skills that underlie the art and you are now ready to train at your fullest ability. I view the PhD very similarly. It is a major achievement. I'm not undermining that at all. It's a major achievement, but it's almost like saying you have acquired the foundational skills that underlie your area of expertise. And there are people who know these skills and they have helped share them with you. You are now ready to truly begin what you're going to do with your career. You are now ready to learn new things, to perfect things, to create things that didn't exist before. And so I think there's a real parallel there. Because what it's a reminder to grumpy old men like me and you is if somebody comes into my office and says, I'm kind of confused. What does it mean if a fit index is non-centrality based? I could quin it and say, you check three resources before you come back to me and ask me that question. All right. But I actually know the answer to that question. And it's not an unreasonable question. And I can respond to that within a matter of minutes. That is part of building that foundational skill set. But at some point, then that expands where you need to take responsibility for finding that yourself. Right. And that, I will tell you, is how I manage my own learning as well, is I... (laughs) I make my grad students learn for me. I I should probably unpack that a little bit. Let me ask you this before I do. When you teach workshops, when you used to teach them in person, did you often get these pairs where you would have an advisor with one or more of of their students taking the workshop? Was that common for you? Yes. And that was like (laughs) wandering drunkenly out into a minefield because Uh you're like doing marital therapy because we also offer where... (laughs) You can have one-on-one meetings, and so you'll have the Uh advisor and the grad student. And Mm -hmm. it's less marital therapy and more family therapy, where it's kind of like you have mom and the daughter, and you're trying Mm -hmm. to navigate that. So yes, yes, I have. (laughs) It's such a funny dynamic, because 
the advisor is often there because the person feels like, well, I should kind of be here, but, but really they're there making the student learn it so that they don't have to learn it, right? All right. So when I say that I put a lot of my own learning on the backs of my students, what I mean by that, and I alluded to something about this in one of the previous episodes, maybe the episode that we had with Becca, as students become more senior, I try to create experiences for them to learn things, but also for them to teach me things. Most of what I have learned since I graduated, and by the way, I know way more since I graduated than I ever learned in my own graduate program, I'm, I'm happy to say. Most of what I've learned, I think, has come from working with students. I tend to say something like, well, let's let's create an experience for you where you can learn about that, and the student will come in and teach me each week in a structured fashion what they have learned. That's one way that I go about doing it, and it's wonderful. I learn a lot, they learn a lot, and they learn how to learn on their own. I will put classes on the books for the schedule and assign myself to them where I don't know a ton about it, but it's something that I feel I ought to start knowing more about. So I'll create a seminar course in it, start figuring out readings, and then bring together a group of more senior graduate students who are later in their academic careers are learning about the process of learning materials that otherwise isn't being delivered to them in some beautiful, digestible PowerPoint fashion. I like that a lot. I do that less myself for no particular reason. What I do a lot of is more informal kind of conversations. So what I struggle with, as I mentioned earlier, I have a very long list of known unknowns. I wish that somebody could stab a hypodermic needle at the base of my skull and inject Bayesian uh, yeah, statistics so that I would just know it, right? Yeah. It was like the Matrix where they plug him into the Matrix and he's like, whoa, I know Kung Fu. I know Kung Fu. Show me. What I really on a personal level struggle with more myself, I know it's redundant, but just going back to those unknown unknowns, yeah. I get a lot out of going to lunch with colleagues, with an individual colleague. Mm -hmm. A lot of times of just saying, tell me what you're working on. What are you doing? What are new frontiers that you're struggling with? And it's not just quant folks trying to spread a broad net. Mm -hmm. I have colleagues in social psych who have these wickedly complicated data sets that are looking at minute-by-minute -minute transactions in studying positivity and things like that. I get a lot out of those kinds of interactions. I do that a lot as well with colleagues, as well as with students who might be taking some course in another department where they're learning about methods I have nothing, you know, no knowledge in. So you do that. You go out to lunch. You ask them to explain some things to you. And a lot of times you can sort of impute the rest yourself, given your content knowledge. Um, but other times it's just really eye-opening because it's ways that you, that you haven't even thought of. I love learning from other people. I love the craft of other people explaining things. I love an extremely well-written didactic paper. I love the enterprise of teaching itself. And those conversations are wonderful. One of the interview questions that I use, whether I'm hiring a very senior person or a very junior person, is you have five minutes to teach me something. And I don't do that to be an ass. I do that because I love learning. And I also like to gauge how well somebody can explain something that is supposedly well within their skill scope. 
but it is so enjoyable for me. I'm going to tell you something about me that maybe gets edited out. I don't know. But I have this characteristic inside me that when something really, really special happens, I get a tingle. It's an actual physical tingle. I feel it. And one of the things that does it more than anything is really good teaching. So I can be sitting there watching somebody's explanation of something and I feel a change in me and the way I think because of what they say. I get this crazy tingle. You have actually done this to me on a few times hearing you explain certain things. Um, There are other colleagues who have had such on-point beautiful explanations. And it doesn't have to be super technical. They just help you think about it in a way that clicks. And you say, damn, that person just gave me a beautiful roadmap to get from this place where I didn't know anything to this place where I understand it. I try to put myself in situations where I get exposed to people explaining things to me, whether it's in written form or personal form. And sometimes that just really takes me to a different place in a variety of ways. It's a wonderful experience. And we can edit all that out. (laughs) Yet again, you're highlighting that you are just a better human being than I am. Because (laughs) I got to tell you, I've never had a tingle in my life. (laughs) Somebody will explain something to me, and as God is my witness, I'll be like, huh, you want to go get a burrito? (laughs) God, thank you. Thank you for making me feel like just a hollow shell of a human being. You gave this wonderful thing of, like, you're a student of life. You said a couple of things that could have gone on a sign they sell in a beach store, you know, about I'm a student of life and learn from all around me. You know what I Uh like doing is screw being a student in life. I just like a good argument. Uh So I have a wonderful student who finished up this year, Noah, and he and I argue and argue and argue And he has become one of the leading experts in propensity scores and propensity score analysis. I know less than nothing about propensity scores, which means Mm -hmm. that I enter a room and I literally suck knowledge out of it, Mm -hmm. right? As I go in and I pull down people around me. But I have Mm -hmm. learned more about propensity scores by arguing with Noah in my office about how silly they are and how we don't need them. And he Mm -hmm. comes uncorked and stands up at the whiteboard and says, no, no, look at what we're doing here. Yeah, thank you for making me feel like just a paper-thin excuse for a human being. Well, thank you for making me feel like a trite statement on some weather driftwood. But I would so pay 18 bucks to say that even at my age, I remain a student of life. I'd pay 18 bucks for that. I'm starting to wonder if we're seeing the little light at the end of the tunnel on this conversation. Um, (laughs) Well, there are other ways that I, and certainly other ways that you learn as well. I I will throw a few more out there. And this, this will be no comfort to my colleagues out there. I will agree to review papers specifically because I don't know something about the topic. That is horrible. That is a horrible strategy. (laughs) It is a horrible strategy. However, because I feel the weight of being a reviewer, it means that I go out and I try to learn about those things. So it's not something I do all the time. I don't get, you know, and we get requests all the time. I don't just go, ooh, another one I don't know something about. Please, yes, send that to me. I view those as opportunities. So when I 
see a new development in an area and like, oh yeah, I really should know about that, then I will agree to do that. It's like the pile of journals that sits on my desk that once I have made that commitment, I can't walk past it for very long without trying to deal with it. Once I have agreed to do a review, I can't just let that go. I've made that commitment. Once I have agreed to teach a course in something, I have to learn about that. I will agree to write book chapters on things that I know something about, but it gives me an opportunity to learn a lot more. I will agree to chair dissertation committees or be on dissertation committees. Like you described Noah, that's an opportunity for you to learn a lot about propensity scores. I relish those kinds of opportunities. So I think the theme for me is to commit to putting myself in situations where I am ignorant, where I am uncomfortable, where I am the white belt in the room. But I'm willing to do that, right? I'm willing to <laughs> to get a little beat up because I know I will progress up through the ranks and become a lot more knowledgeable. And that's what works for me, whether it's a combination of being an honorary Irish Catholic or, or whatever else it might be. I think you have to be willing to put yourself in situations where you don't know something so that you can fight your way out of that. I like all of those, and I have three that I can wrap up with on my own. Is One <laughs> is everything you need to know in life you learned in kindergarten. The second <laughs> is be your own hero. And the third is... Dance as if no one is watching. <laughs> There's no, no more driftwood uh, available. <laughs> so you just mentioned three really good statements, I think. But I'm going to add a fourth, and it comes from someone I have a lot of respect from. And it is the following statement, and I quote, I never cease to be amazed at the extent to which in academia you can volitionally reinvent yourself. That was something that you said way back in episode 15, Academia and the Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> and I think it is perfect in the sense of the word reinvent because you can constantly reinvent yourself in terms of your knowledge space and volitionally. Because you make that choice to do so. You make that choice to go and run in the <laughs> lightning storm, or you make the choice to put yourself in... <laughs> it's running day. you got to okay, run on running day. That's what the word means. It's running day. So, But I, I actually think about that thing that you said a lot, that we are, in, we are blessed to be in careers where we can volitionally reinvent ourselves. And I think we have to be willing to do so. And I think it's one of the greatest gifts of the career choice that we've made. And just bringing it full circle, and just to reiterate an earlier point that opened this discussion is... Is don't forget, this is Chris Preacher's fault. <laughs> Nothing more to be said. All right, buddy. I'm really excited that the pandemic is going to be over in two days. So I think I'm going to go start getting ready for that. Going to ride this baby out. Another 48 hours and it's going to be easy street. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, take care. I'll catch up with you later. All right. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> what the hell was that? <laughs> that was my pandemic cough. Well, stop it. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll, I'll not do that. <laughs> All right, so your assignment for this week is to start the process of volitionally reinventing yourself. Go out there and learn a new quantitative method or learn something new about a quantitative method that you already have some expertise in. Doesn't matter whether you learn it from a YouTube video or a teacher's corner piece or a software manual. 
but go out there and learn something new. Commit yourself to going out there and being uncomfortable and starting to learn something. Enjoy. This is the fun stuff. Take care, everybody. Hi, Patrick. Uh, Chris Preacher here. Hope you're doing well and all that. Listen, um, I really need you to stop calling me to beg me for novel research ideas. Honestly, it's, it's beneath you and kind of pathetic. I know you have it in you to do better than that, and I just wanted to give you some positive encouragement. Also, if you keep doing it, you're probably going to be hearing from my lawyer, but I know it won't come to that. Right, buddy? Okay, then. Have a nice rest of the summer, and um, ciao. Hi, Greg. Chris Preacher here. Hey, um, it's been a while since we've spoken. You haven't returned my calls, but that's okay. I know you're a busy guy, and I understand. Just drop me an email when you get a chance. I just wanted to know what you thought about that podcast idea that I pitched to you a couple of years ago. You know, the one where we team up and offer advice on various topics related to quantitative methods, navigating academia, writing and reviewing grants, getting articles published, and mix it up with a lot of humor. I think it could be a real hit and really helpful to a lot of people. Anyway, let me know what you think, and uh, I'll talk to you later, friend. Bye for now.